The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. James Lang is one of my favorite authors and thinkers when it comes to excellence in teaching and learning in higher education. I first came across his work when he was working on a book called Cheating Lessons, Learning from Academic Dishonesty, and I was running a massive open online course on academic integrity. He's written other books. He wrote a book called On Course, a week-by-week guide for your first semester of college teaching. He wrote a book called Small Teaching, Everyday Lessons from the Science of Learning. But today I brought him on to focus specifically on a new book, a forthcoming book called Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. We certainly talk about some of his past work, and yet then we center our conversation on this new and forthcoming book. So you'll get a taste of it before it even releases, at least if you're listening to this prior to the middle or end of October 2020. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's really great to connect with you. I think, I can't remember how long ago it was. It's been a number of years. I think we first connected briefly when I was uh, experimenting with a massive open online course called uh, Cheat MOOC. And uh, it was, that's what it became known at in, in Twitter and the like. And I think the Chronicle of Higher Ed had this really nice provocative title, Professor Teaches How to Cheat with an Eye Toward Prevention or something like that. And you had, I believe, had recently published, or maybe it was coming out soon, Cheating Lessons around that time. Yes, actually, there's some similarities in uh, the titles of our uh, your MOOC and my book, because my book is called Cheating Lessons. So likewise, I think there were some people that thought they were going to and get some uh, lessons on how to cheat from the book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, hopefully uh, they, they found something valuable in there, even if that's why they came to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know in the MOOC, I had initially, it was a mini MOOC, so we capped it at a thousand. And mm. I had about 10 people in there who were clearly shown themselves to be college students who are in there to figure out how to <laughs> some good strategies and yeah. they, they disengaged pretty quickly after they saw what it really was <laughs> well there's no shortages of materials and resources online for people that want to cheat so uh, right. you know, we're a minority in terms of offering <laughs> yeah exactly so in terms of your journey kind of getting into this excellence and teaching and learning world that you've ventured into could you just give a little background for people about how you ended up in in that space in higher education yep so i got my phd in english at northwestern um, in the late 1990s and actually the first job i took after graduating actually i took it in the year that i was writing my dissertation was at the center for teaching excellence at northwestern um, which was run by Ken Bain at that time. And Ken gave me the opportunity to work in the Center for Teaching Excellence for like 15 or 20 hours a week as sort of a graduate student fellow. Uh, And one of the first things he did, which was sort of changed my life, was, you know, they had this library of materials. uh, It was books and and then they had um, file cabinets full of articles, um, you know, cataloged under different titles like effective discussions, lecturing, et cetera. And Ken kind of encouraged me to just to, to read. And to just sort of engage with all the research 
that the center had collected about excellence in teaching. And of course, I was teaching at the time as a graduate student, and I found it really fascinating to sort of discover that there was all this research on how to teach effectively in higher education, whereas I had just kind of mostly been blundering along and doing what I had seen my teachers do and trying to figure things out um, on the fly. So, so that I found that really interesting, and, and I have sort of been engaged with that ever since. After I, I spent three years there, after I finished and got my degree, I spent three years working as the assistant director of the center. And then I wanted to, to teach full time and to, to get a job in my field. So I did. I got a job as an English professor and I have been doing that for the past 20 years. But in the meantime, I stayed engaged with the literature on teaching and learning in higher education. And I stayed engaged with the writing aspect of it by writing for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so I've been doing that for 20 years as well. And, and the books have mostly emerged from interactions or originally from ideas for Chronicle essays once I wrote my first book about this subject, which was a guide for new teachers, which came out in 2008, I started getting invited to, to give talks and lectures and on other campuses. And, and then that led to kind of recognizing what the, what the problems were, actually. So my last few books have actually been, you might think about a sort of problem-based approaches to faculty development. Um, where are the things that people struggle the most with? And those are things I certainly struggle with as well. And academic integrity and cheating is a great example of that. Um, once you look at where the problems are, if you go to those problems, you can think about um, solutions and new ideas for teaching that people are willing, are kind of eager for, right? If you just go into a, um, an institution or a faculty member and say, you should change your teaching and here's how to make it better. Many people are not necessarily receptive to that because they think things are going fine and and so they don't have any desire to put in a lot of work. But if you go to where the pro they're, they're having problems, that's a great place to kind of say, hey, I, I see you're having this problem here. Um, here's some ideas that could help. And in the meantime, you're kind of offering them new ways to think about teaching. So um, I, I really like that, that way of thinking about how to approach the improvement of teaching in higher education is, is to go where the problems are and then try and not exactly sneak in the faculty development, but but use that as an opportunity to introduce people to new ideas. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember when I worked kind of in the teaching and learning space, um, founded an instructional design center that had a sort of CELT-like feel to it as well. One of the more common instances, motivations for a faculty member to show up in that office was when they got their course evaluations at the end of the semester. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was problem-based. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's a spur for a lot of people. In fact, I sometimes in my, you know, I direct a teaching center now on my campus. And um, one of the, the drivers, for, especially for junior faculty, is when they get those evaluations or they get an evaluation from their department chair, um, says, look, you need to work on this. And then that's often when they come see us. Yeah, yeah. So um, you had, I know that you've, you've uh, published a number of, uh, a couple of other books, at least. I mean, I'm familiar with the ones from your website. Um, and I've read On Course and Cheating Lessons and Small Teaching. And um, this uh, new book, when does it release, Distracted? So the new book is going to come out in October of 2020. So uh -huh. just a few months away. It was originally scheduled for November, but they pushed it up because, of course, distraction and attention has become a much more pressing issue now, um, now that we're doing almost everything online and, and could be doing so again for the fall. Um, so I hope to um, be able to 
you know, the, the book actually doesn't address online teaching specifically. Um, it's more a general kind of account of, of how we should think about distraction and attention and education. But I think people who teach online will certainly be able to find um, ideas and solutions in there that apply to their context. Yeah, I appreciate what I appreciate about your writing in general is it's not just the obvious stuff that you bring to the table that you draw from maybe some of the research and data that many faculty aren't as familiar with. And so it's not just sort of an exercise in listing the obvious, you know, do these 10 things. And <laughs> well, so then in the new book, I really tried to do that in a, an even more kind of radical way by bringing in not only research on education, but also by bringing in um, new ideas and theories or strategies coming from completely outside of education, actually. So one of the things um, I argue in the book is, is that teachers have to think about the classroom experience as one that unfolds over time. And when you think about it like that, um, we can look for inspiration to um, other creators of experiences that unfold over time, playwrights and composers, for example. So a playwright knows that they have to keep the attention of the audience for an hour or two hours. And one of the ways in which they make sure they do that is there are scene changes, there are act changes, there are intermissions, right? There are, so this is not an experience in which you're just sort of sitting and watching something for two hours straight uh, or even 75 minutes straight, right? There are constant little shifts in what's going on and there's deliberate thinking about the dramatic arc, right? So there might be a scene that's setting things up and then there's some action and then, then there's a conversation, right? So we can look to like, or in, you think about a symphony and um, in the book I describe going to the symphony with my wife and thinking about how are we being led through this experience, this timed experience through something that, you know, many people are not that familiar. You know, even people that go to the symphony might not be all that familiar with classical music and its structures and intricacies and everything, but still we get the same thing, right? Um, the mo there's movements. The movements tend to have different pieces. You know, there's, there's sort of a slope movement and there's a, there's a real fast one. There's a mission. There's three, tends to be three things on the program. One of them's short and new. One of them's then more traditional and longer, right? So, so these things have all been sort of, the people that have been doing this for centuries and centuries have something to teach us about how to structure an experience that unfolds through time. Likewise, um, I also, so there's a chapter on sort of thinking like a playwright or a composer. There's also a chapter on thinking like a poet. Because one of the things that I think poetry does for us is it reawakens us and makes us pay new attention to familiar things, right? So like a poet oftentimes, or the same way that an artist will, a still life makes us think, see something new, right? Like, so that bowl of fruit on the table, which you walk by, you know, hundreds of times and don't think anything of, the still life kind of gets you to look at it in a new way and, and reawaken your attention to it. And poetry does the same thing. So in the book, I also argue that we need to think about how can we approach our subject matter like poets and think about like uh, strategies or activities that are going to like really kind of get students, whoa, you know, like I never thought about it like that. Um, so thinking about uh, the, the unfolding of a classroom experience from the perspective of both a playwright and a poet. So I try to do a lot of that in the book is essentially is to look at where do people pay attention? In, in life. And then to think about what we can learn from that, that we could bring into the classroom. 
Wow. Now this is really powerful. Um, I, now I, I haven't read the book. Usually when I interview someone, I've read the book in advance, but this one I haven't seen <laughs> since it hasn't come out yet. And, um, and I'm, I'm so intrigued by this. This resonates with a lot of my research. I've been intrigued by, uh, and I know this isn't a necessarily popular worldview or way of thinking in, in many contexts today, but I'm intrigued by the, the principles upon which our education system and our classrooms are often designed, sort of the assumed principles, and oftentimes we get stuck in uh, around values and principles of efficiency and measurement, and it's just sort of the reality of the modern kind of context and world and education system. Um, and my argument was that one of the reasons why we find any number of people disengaged at any given time um, is because those aren't designed to engage. Those aren't designed to enrich or inspire a person. I mean, very, very few of us, you know, get up in the morning and say, boy, I can't wait to grade people, you know, I mean, or something like that. Um, and, and so what I was trying to do was say, well, what are the, what are the principles that really almost seem to transcend time and place and culture in terms of the things that really inspire and engage. And that brings yeah. us like wonder and mystery and, you know, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I, I actually wrote about this in Small Teaching, and I mentioned it again in, um, in this book as well, about the importance of, for example, of cultivating curiosity, right, as, as an educational thing. So, I, you know, I've, I've mentioned this quote many times, but Dan Willingham, um, who does great work in um, thinking about prin applying principles of cognitive science to education, it argues that most of our disciplines and courses arise because they were attempts to answer deep fundamental questions about the human condition. And we come into class and say, I've got an answer for you. And the students are saying, I didn't ask you a question, right? So, so the first thing that we have to think about is how do we surface the questions? And, and, and that sometimes requires us going back in our own intellectual journeys and saying, what really fascinated me about this subject so much that I got into it and was willing to spend my life devoted to it. Um, but we sometimes lose sight of those original questions, which are the one that are, ones that are more likely to capture the interests of our students. So I agree with you. We have to think about, again, thinking outside of the classroom. I, and I'm not uh, someone who believes, you know, we have to do things completely differently in higher education. That, that was small teaching is, was an argument that we can make positive changes within the structures that exist. But at the same time, I do think we can think creatively by going outside and think, seeing what happens in these other contexts in which people are motivated, which they're pursuing their sports and their hobbies, and um, and they're really paying attention to things outside of the uh, outside of the classroom context, and then say, okay, what can we learn from this, and how can we bring that into the experiences that we're creating for our students? I appreciate that about your work. It, you come off as a a uh, kindred spirit to other faculty is someone that people can relate to. And they say, you know, even in change management and diffusion of innovation work, they say that it's really hard for like an early adopter to convince a laggard, you know, on that, that original right. Everett Rogers scale to come along that there usually has to be the, the, the people who are influenced or those who look at you as a, as a peer and you're not trying to destroy or completely disrupt their world and you're not. <laughs> um, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do think that it's, you know, there have been times when I've thought to myself, you know, I could probably sort of go out on my own as an educational consultant, but it wouldn't work for me because I, I need to be in the classroom to understand, like, again, like the new challenges that arise, you know, for faculty, I wouldn't know about them. I wouldn't have experienced them if I weren't in the classroom every semester. And, you know, I think I'm a good teacher. 
I'm, but I've observed enough teachers to know I'm not an amazing teacher. What I'm good at is um, seeing the amazing things that other faculty members do and thinking about like, why do they do those things? How do they work? And, you know, sometimes I manage to get them in my own classroom, but uh, probably not as much as I would like. Um, so I, I still kind of wrestle with the same things that, you know, that my audience is wrestling with. Right. And I think that you, you also, I mean, you note that you're not trying to offer some kind of massive reform or revolutionary piece. And that certainly it seems true from your books, at least in terms of the structure of schooling or, you know, the, the university system. But I would suggest that there's some pretty revolutionary thinking. It's just that you're focused on the most critical issue, which is what happens in the learner. That's, and I am, and I, I am very focused. Like I, I've always had a very sort of practical curiosity about what happens in the classroom and how that impacts the student. Like, and so what is, the, what experience is the student having in the classroom? Um, I'm just endlessly curious about like, what are the things that people do and what kind of a difference does it make to students? So, you know, I actually have this curiosity about people's jobs as well. Like sometimes when I, you know, meet new people, I'm like, yeah, but what, like, what do you actually do? Like, tell me about what your day consists of. Right? And I, I have this curiosity about the classroom experience as well, because there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's what's happening with the student. And I had a very, you know, positive and profound educational experience as a student. So I'm always trying to think about like, what, what can I do that will give students that same kind of experience that I had? But there's also something really creative about designing a new teaching strategy, right? Like, that's akin to writing an article or a book or something like that. So it draws on those same creative um, skills or those same creative pathways that we have. So, you know, I, you can think about it from both those respects, but I don't know. I just really enjoy learning about and then ex and experimenting with um, kind of creative teaching strategies. But typically I do that, you know, within the bounds of a regular classroom, because that's where I am. I'm in a classroom, you know? And so with you know traditional age students sometimes we get non-traditional students but more or less traditional students in a classroom teaching british literature survey too like that's typically what i'm doing so that's kind of where i'm curious about what can we do there that makes the most difference i'm wondering too about um your process for putting this into a book form. So we haven't seen this book yet. You've obviously thought through it. It's uh, I don't know if it's with the publisher at this stage uh, already or where you are with the drafts, but uh, um, can you talk just a little bit? It seems like you explore and experiment with some ideas for a given time period. You test them out, play around with them yourself, perhaps try them out with other faculty in terms of helping them and guiding them. And then it finds its way into a book. Is that sort of the, the process? It's a lot of different things. Um, one of the one of the things that really um, helped me with this book was I was actually on the evaluation committee for two years, and so the our evaluation committee, you know, the promotion and tenure committee on my campus, which meant that I was in a lot of classrooms. So for two years, I was observing, you know, a couple dozen class sessions per year, because we have to observe, you know, everybody who's going up for tenure promotion. We're each in charge of a person's case, so we observe that person multiple times. I get asked to observe sometimes for, for my role as director of the teaching center. And so, um, as I explained in the introduction to the book, during all these sessions, I was kind of thinking about the book, right? So, I mean, I, the, book, the process of writing the book started two years ago when I got the proposal to a publisher and had that accepted. So, for, the net, for those two years, 
whenever I was observing in a classroom, I mean, I was doing what I was supposed to do and, you know, evaluating how things were going and everything. But there was another part of me that was always going, when are, when are they paying attention and when are they not paying attention? And what is a teacher doing in the front of the room that, um, that I can use to think about this? So like one easy example I'll give you is, I noticed in observing a lot of teachers was how many teachers stay in that little front slip of the room, you know, in front of the black, in front of the board and don't come out into the seats. And if you, if you're sitting as a room in an observer in the back of the room, one of the things that you'll notice is the kids in the, the students in the front couple rows are paying a lot more attention than students in the back few rows. And that's, I think, because they self-segregate, but also because it's easier to, to, um, to, to go onto your device or whatever, and it's easier to hide it, you know, and, and, and get off task if you're in the back row. And what I saw from the, a few teachers who didn't do that, and what I've learned to do myself is, you know, the whole space should be used. I shouldn't be confined to a little six-foot strip at the front of the room, right? I want to go out and, like, interact with students when we're having a discussion. And sometimes I want to be standing next to a student who's, um, who's in the back of the room. And sometimes I want to be in the back of the room projecting to the front of the Like, so one of the lowest hanging fruits I saw in terms of distraction tension was get out into the room, right? If you're standing next to a student, they're not going to be on their laptop watching a YouTube video. And it's, you can think about that as creepy, but in fact, you can also think about that as, look, I want to invite everybody into the conversation. My presence can help with that. Again, if you think about a theater, the playwright doesn't have the, the actors all standing dead center of the room looking in the middle of the um, audience, right? The, 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 the playwright or the director uses the whole stage and people are speaking to, and you know, they projected different parts of the audience because that way everybody feels included. And the same is true for a classroom. So anyway, so a big part of my process for this book was observing, occasionally then trying things out myself, as you said, um, and but then I also always try to look and see, okay, have people written about this? You know, it comes from all three of those things. It comes from observations, uh, which I are a regular part of my job. It comes from my own experimentation, and I always then I always try to either match it or come up with other ideas from the research literature. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly a half an hour goes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we didn't even get into much of it. But we don't want to give it away, right? The book hasn't come out exactly, yet, so exactly. we'll make this a teaser. And um, the book for those listening again is called "Distracted: Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It." I think it's already available for pre-order on Amazon, uh, perhaps elsewhere, uh, releasing in October, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Uh, James, really love your work. Appreciate what you're doing. Um, maybe if you're open to it, love to have you, have you on the show again in the future. After the book releases, we'll get a, a sense of how people are responding to it. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. Thanks for hosting. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.